For the past 15 years, Evelyn Paradis has been the executive director of ILGA Europe, leading the organization as it grew to become the largest of its kind in the region, representing and working on behalf of over 700 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia. Welcome to The Frontline. My name is Brian Finnegan, and in this, the second of four interviews with Evelyn as she prepares to leave ILGA Europe, I'm sitting down with her to talk about the current state of play for the LGBTI movement at a time that was unforeseen when Evelyn first took up her position. We're going to explore how ILGA Europe has worked with and expanded to meet the needs of its members, and talk about how queer activism has grown and evolved over the course of Evelyn's time working with the organisation. Hi Evelyn and uh, welcome to this second interview in our series as you get ready to leave ILGA Europe. Can we begin with ILGA Europe's relationship to the movement? What is ILGA Europe's core relationship to its members? Well, um, this is of course my view, (laughs) but I truly hope and actually truly believe that it is a shared view. For me, the members, so LGBTI organisations, are the heartbeat of the organization. They are the essence of what makes Ilga Europe what it is. I think it is about the way in which we make everything at the end of the day, about activists, about organizations. It's integrated in our way of thinking and the way we design our programs, in the way of we think through our activities, the way we think through the policies that we fight for. I think at the end of the day, it is that in all of our minds, it's about what is going to be helpful and relevant and help the work that is happening across the region. There's always been this conflation between members and movement in ILGA Europe. And I have to be honest that I don't think I've ever made the distinction. For me, of course, this is not to disrespect any organization who is a member, but I think My experience has been that most organizations and activists and groups that we've worked with one way or another become members of ILGA Europe. So when I say members and when I think members in ILGA Europe, I think we think of the larger movement and the larger group of LGBTI activists and initiative groups and community groups that do the work day in, day out across the region. So those are the people that I talk about when I talk about they are the heartbeat and the essence of the organization. And I think I want to add my own personal relationship to to those wonderful activists. I honestly can say they have been my drive all these years. It's been my biggest source of inspiration, of learning, definitely learning. (laughs) Um, They have pushed me. They have challenged me in the best possible way. And I can honestly say that the highlights of my years of Europe have been moments I've spent, you know, trips and meetings with members and definitely the annual conference. So in in that time, that learning and evolution, what would you say ILGA Europe's responsibilities to its members is? Well, there are many responsibilities and of course, um, of course, there are some formal responsibilities, right, in an organization like ours. The governance part, the the reporting, the organizing, the general meetings and getting internal processes approved and so on and so forth. But for me, the responsibilities that we have at Ill Europe towards LGBTI activists and organizations goes way beyond those formal responsibilities. I think responsibilities have included listening, truly listening, constantly listening to hear 
what the realities of activists and organization is like, what is important to them and their communities, and listening so that we remain relevant in our work and connected to their realities. So that goes with hearing as well, our responsibility to hear, and, and especially the harder truths that have come our way uh, about what we were doing or not doing or should be really doing differently, some of the weaknesses that we have because it's constant learning. I think we have a responsibility to be accountable to them uh, and not, again, in the governing governance manner, but really be accountable about what we choose to do or not do and why. Explain the, the contours of and the limitations in our work we have that responsibility very strongly and just be present as well. But I will say that I've always felt we had a responsibility as well to reflect back to the movement and to the members what we were seeing because that is the difference between ILGA Europe and each individual national organization or local organizations that we do sit in a privileged place. And I'm not only talking about the resources we have because we are privileged because of what we see, what we get to see and to connect to. And I think it is our responsibility not to sit on that perspective, but to reflect it back and to share it back in a way that is hopefully guiding the movement and, you know, members or non-members, but the movement in general to guide it to places that we think it needs to go to. So in listening and being guided and reflecting back over the time that you've been working with Ilga, your priorities have evolved and changed for our membership and for the movement from partnerships to marriage equality to gender recognition and many other things. So how did they shape Ilga Europe's work and how does Ilga Europe respond to the rising priorities? That's, it's actually a big question, because <laughs> I think the role of Ilgirup, at least the way I've always seen it, is to be holding a space for the diversity of positions that exist in the movement and in the wider community. That was certainly tr true in my first few years at Ilgirup, way back when, where there was a, a time, still a quite heated discussion around whether the movement should be pushing for partnership versus marriage equality. And our responsibility back then was to say, it's not our place to take a position because we need to recognize that there are different opinions and different valid opinions for why, you know, one strategy over another. And I'm using this as an example because that was very vivid for me at the, at the, in the early years, but it taught me that we have to be the space where we create the possibility to recognize that there are a multiplicity of issues and a multiplicity of priorities, depending on country, depending on some parts of the movement. And we need to, you know, translate those both for the movement. We need to translate it back to say we need to discuss. We need to accept that not everybody has one line on a policy. Not everybody thinks this issue is more important than that issue. And I think what has changed the most is less on an issue specific, but how we have seen our role and clarity on our role. Because it's not an easy position to be in, <laughs> to create this container where the diversity of issue, which has actually only increased, uh, the, the diversity of topics, the diversity of priorities for the movement have 
you know, expanded a lot. And it's actually a good thing because it comes from a place where more people have had their voices heard. But in that large context of having a multitude of issues that we could deal with and multiple views on how to deal with these issues, I think it's been about the constant navigating of what is the role of Europe in this. And especially in our advocacy role, <laughs> in finding how we translate the diversity of positions into a understandable policy position for a, an official in Brussels, you know, working for the EU, or how we explain the complexity of why there are different ways of looking at a certain uh, aspect of rights to a government official, etc. So it's been, it's been a journey and it continues to be a journey where we can translate this in meaningful policy messages, but at the same time, from the movement perspective, how we make it clear that we should all be able to talk about, you know, one issue over another. And I think I'll add that one of the roles that has become more and more important for ILGA Europe is to be there to amplify the issues that constantly get marginalized and don't get the attention. So Whereas marriage equality remains, I think, the single most talked about issue in the wider public. You know, when you say we work on LGBTI rights, any journalist will start asking us, but, you know, what about marriage equality? And I think our role is to draw attention as much as we can to issues that matter for the marginalized parts of the, of the movement and the community. You've talked about a diversity of priorities and the idea of having to put one issue above another, sometimes having to focus on that. And with that in mind, what are the current priorities, the current issues that we are placing our emphasis on? I think there are definite priorities that the movement will recognize itself in, in terms of LGBTI-specific rights. Um, there's clearly a big emphasis that is needed and I see will continue it will be needed more on on trans rights in general and legal gender recognition and more especially because this is where the opposition is invested in so it's hopefully going to be placed more on moving forward but I, I guess a lot of efforts are going to be needed on preventing rollback um, and I'm not going to please people by saying, you know, all of the list of many LGBTI issues that, you know, would be on the agenda for the foreseeable future. But I think the other aspects that require attention is broader democracy and where LGBTI activists have been at the forefront of defending democracy. We've talked a lot about it in, the, in our own communication and work in the last year, but it matters that the movement is there to defend the, the bedrock, basically, of what allows our societies to function and for our rights to be continuously defended. So I think that's going to take a lot of time and energy in the next few years. And then to go back to my previous answer, I see that one aspect of the work that I hope will continue to grow and it will grow significantly is more attention to socioeconomic inequalities because that's where people are still being left behind in deep, very real ways. Access to safe housing, access to adequate employment and fair employment, access to healthcare, all issues around the damage done by migration policies in Europe at the moment and the exclusion of migrants. So I think those are going to be, I hope, you know, 
ever more important priorities for the movement in the years to come. We're at about 700 plus members now and that's yeah. growing all the time and as that membership grows and Ilk Europe grows alongside it as we receive more money to regrant to build the movement what are the pressures and challenges that the organization is facing well the pressures of expectations have been there for quite some time but i've also said for a long time it's actually a luxury to be managing positive expectations. <laughs> um, it's basically managing the success of the work that we do. And so we should take pride in that. Having said that, challenges are real. And I think the challenges are, I, I don't know actually that I would phrase them as challenges, more as very real, serious questions that we ask ourselves deeply in the ILGA Europe team, which is, yes, we have more resources and I do trust and have faith that the resources will continue to be there and possibly grow as well in the near future. And the questions are, how do we distribute these resources responsibly? How do we not disproportionately disperse the money and use these resources, you know, disproportionately use in one region, part of the region over another, in one country over another? How do we not overlook needs? By doing so, because, you know, there's always pressure for funders to invest in certain parts of the region or in certain topics, uh, especially where we see that the needs are there, but they're also elsewhere. So how do we use the resources we have in a fair manner, which is not an easy task when you cover a region as wide and as diverse as, as ours. So 54 countries ranging from Iceland to Central Asia. So there's quite a diversity of realities in that space. But it's also about how we continue to make the case for the resources that we have to go in places where access to resources have been so limited for so long. Uh, I think we've done this very well in recent years to make the case for our money, our resources, our people resource to be able to be allocated to parts of the movement and the community that traditionally have had very little access to means. But this is only the beginning. It definitely is only, you know, the start. So I think how can we grow our capacity to do that is a big question for ILGA Europe. And I will say also in terms of how we use our money, how do we continue to be flexible and able to take risk? Because that's been a big piece of how ILGA Europe has been the role that we've played as a grant maker. Again, I remember conversations very, very early on in, in, in my time at ILG Europe, and it wasn't me. That wasn't my piece of work. It was colleagues of mine. But in the initial moments of starting to think about regranting, it was the first, first fund was a documentation fund. And it was so important, you know, already there that ILGA Europe would be able to take risks, as we would call it, by funding new initiatives by funding activists who didn't have long-standing experience, but we would be that grant maker who could give that first access. There's such important first access to a grant, you know, a bit of funding to get them to start and to trust them, actually, to trust them, to trust that they knew what to do. And that has certainly stayed with me, and I think it stayed in the organization. And it remains a challenge because as you grow and you manage, you know, quite large sums of money by now, we also need to balance this with risk management, being financially responsible, holding ourselves to account to, you know, our funders and being compliance. 
So I think that's another question that I know is still very present in the team and I suspect it will not go away. How do we continue to be a grant maker that can still be there for those first initiatives that just need, you know, a first organization to trust them? And what have been the elements of the work that you've been proudest of over the years that you've been with Elgi Europe, Evelyn? There are so many moments and so many highlights, but I've also I also find it difficult to claim pride <laughs> in any specific piece because everything has always felt so collective. It's always felt that being happy that we could play the role we could play to support what was happening at national level for individual organizations, for particular movements. I think that is one thing I'm very proud of, that we've been playing our role. There are certain highlights, you know, um, landmark moments in the LGBTI movement history of Europe that there is a pride in having been part of it or having contributed to it, whether it's first prides or big developments, uh, whether it's, you know, EU policies or national legislations. But it's, as I say, I think it's hard to claim pride in specific things because everything is so collective. Having said that, I'm very proud of our annual conferences. I continue to be. They've evolved, <laughs> they've changed over time, but I'm proud of the spaces that we've created year after year as a staff team with the support of the board, the spaces that have allowed activists to come together, feel a sense of belonging. Uh, I think hopefully for the most part, it's been safe spaces for people to come together, to be themselves, to share, to learn from each other, to get inspired. There was this one activist who kept on saying for years to me, every time, every year, she would say, you know, this is my moment of respite every year. She would come year after year to say, that's my moment. And those are things that I'm proud of, that we were creating that space. We continue to. And I, I again, I have all the trust in the world that, that it will continue to be that way. I think those are those are moments where I feel the particular pride because I think we can claim this as an Elgi Europe team. So on to slightly more thorny issues. There's a lot of negative framed narratives around at the moment concerning LGBTI people and the movement. Things like the victim narrative or the idea of being overwhelmed by forces that oppose our rights and equality. And sometimes they can take really deep root. Are those narratives helpful and if not, why? I think we can discuss for a long time whether victims' narrative are helpful or not in, in the societies that we live in and we know how communications work. I think my answer would be actually that they're not true. I think that's the bigger piece that bothers me about the victims' narrative because what I have seen, experienced, lived in the past 18 years is that the people that I've met over those years are anything but victims. I've seen so much courage, patience. I don't overuse this word. I really mean it. Resilience, determination, capacity to make mistakes and learn from it, to care for each other, that I don't I think it's actually the worst possible thing to say than to claim that any of the activists and the organizations they have created are victims. Some people are real victims of real crimes. Yes, I, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about portraying the community and portraying the movement as victims. 
might be tactically used sometimes, you know, that's one thing, but it's certainly not the truth. And what about the idea, as I said, of being overwhelmed by opposing forces, that this idea there's a battle that we can't win? Yeah. Again, I think everything we see in the Europe team on a day-to-day basis contradicts that any similar assertion, which is not to deny that the current context is not a very heavy one. It is heavy, very heavy. It's very challenging. It is, of course, having a deep impact on communities, on individuals, especially the individuals who are the more visible ones in in their own countries and take a lot of the heat. It is affecting organizations. It's affecting their organizations in very real ways, you know, funding being cut, making the context in which they work very difficult. So I do not deny that. It is a, a tough moment that the movement is in, absolutely. And... As we've been talking about it in Ilga Europe, communicating about it, there are still positive developments in a number of countries. People are still moving forward despite challenging context. They are finding ways, you know, to cope. It's not just to cope. Actually, coping is the wrong word. They're finding ways, you know, around it to continue to move forward. I think many of them are acknowledging their difficulties and the difficulties they're in, which is for me never a sign of weakness when you acknowledge where it's challenging. People are still able to seek help and support where they need it. So none of this for me rings like, you know, the position of a victim. So as you leave Ilga Europe, Evelyn, what's your overview of the challenges that are ahead? Well, I started to talk about one of the challenges, which is, yes, the moment we're in is not an easy one. It's heavy because the political context in a majority of European countries is not favorable to moving forward. But beyond that, it's also there's a lot of we know this very well everywhere. The social media and the public narratives in many places, there's, you know, a lot of toxic narrative that is hard and it's having very real impact on people, of course. It's also a moment in time where the resources for LGBTI work are reduced. They're not what they used to be, broadly speaking, in the region. So people are are having to figure out how to do the work with more limited resources. The last few years have been tough indeed, so there is a there is a higher uh, rate of people moving out of activism. And so all of this, of course, makes it, you know, a big challenge. And the challenge is how to continue to support the movement. And by the movement, I mean, how do we support the people who are making up the groups and the organizations? How do we support the collective of people to continue to have the tools, the means, the energy, the physical and mental capacity to do their work in a safe way? That has to be a number one priority. Because without the activists, the groups, the organizations that are there for their communities, that are talking to the politicians, they're talking to their governments, that are educating, you know, the wider public. If you don't have that, this is where the rollback will be even bigger and more real. So that is the challenge we're all taking on, basically, is how do we invest in continuing to build a sustainable movement across the region? And have you ideas around how to face that, how to rise to face that? 
I think we are. We, I think Europe has, <laughs> and, and we're not the only ones. I think many people have those ideas, and it's not just ideas. I think we're all concretely working towards that. And it is about, as I said, I mean, there's a piece that is about those of us who are in a position to mobilize funding and resources. That's our main responsibility. But I know, you know, at the Ilga Europe conference this year, what you'll be talking about is how you continue to invest in building the collective resilience, which is about how do we develop new strategies and new thinking and how do we work together more, even more <laughs> than we have been already across, you know, across organizations, across sectors. How do we bring more people in to the work, you know, from outside the movement, you know, greater allies. These are all pieces of work that Ilga Europe is already doing, I think, and many more organizations are starting to think about and or doing. So I think the solutions are there. It's not that they're not. It's more about bringing more people into those conversations, I think, and also creating more, as many spaces as we can for activists to have a space like the headspace, and I would add the heart space to do the thinking. Because I think that's one of the pressures at the moment for many people is that the opposition is real, the challenges are real, and it's easy to constantly be in reactive survival mode. And people need a bit of time to take a bit of a step back so that they can move forward, you know, with greater resolve. So Evelyn, we'll be continuing the conversation. We'll be talking about the evolution of ILGA Europe during your time but as you move forward in your own life and move beyond Ilga Europe, what's your message for the movement? I think one of my main messages is to remember that you're all in this together. I know the, the world <laughs> around is making it hard sometimes, you know, and actually it's easy to turn against one another. But we're all in this together and it matters that we keep the solidarity and the cohesion as strong as possible in this movement, which is not to say that you deny differences and you deny and you kind of overlook that there are loads of inequalities within the community and within the movement. But you have to work with them, you have to make space for everybody, and you have to be in it together and also beyond, because we live in a world that is trying to divide us all and to fuel those divisions. I think I'm in the position where I can say this. I know everybody in this movement is smarter than that. <laughs> I really, really know that. So, yeah, work to make it work for everybody in the movement so that we can all move forward as one. Thanks, Evelyn, and talk to you again soon. You have been listening to The Frontline, Ilke Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. Please visit the links in our episode description and subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcast. The more we hear from you, the more activists will gain from our work at Ilke Europe to build a strong and resilient movement for positive change in LGBTI people's lives. Tune in next time when I'll be talking to Evelyn in our third interview about the evolution of Ilke Europe over the past two decades. Bye for now.